This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week we look at how the media marked the milestone of 25 years of MMP for our elections and we talk to a filmmaker who captured one of the most vivid vignettes of the first MMP outing back in 1996. Changing the system certainly changed politics, but have the media adapted? Also, we asked the brains behind last weekend's hastily organised eight-hour televised vaxathon, what lessons we learned from that, and as the COVID crisis deepens and lockdowns in Auckland and Waikato lengthen, the mental health effects of all this are being aired in the media more than ever. But is that helping, or could it be making it worse? But before all that, we look at how one date in particular seems very much on the mind of our media. How are you coping? I mean, it's been ten weeks and counting... <laughs> yeah, it's like I, I don't know how to answer that question now, really. Yeah, um, yeah. I, you know, it's just you just get on with it, don't you? And that was Nikki Bazant, the health editor for Woman magazine and a familiar voice in the media on matters of health and nutrition and well-being for many years now. And like many others, having limited and locked down lives under level three in Auckland, well-being for her is a bit suboptimal at the moment. Something Christchurch-based ZB host Simon Barnett and James Daniels were acutely aware of chatting to her last Wednesday afternoon. And this week, the government staggering its eagerly awaited announcements of its plans for the weeks and months to come didn't really help with that. On the morning before the government made what amounted to the staggered announcement announcement last Monday afternoon, there was one deadline on the media's mind when the PM fronted up for her regular interviews. The AM show's Ryan Bridge put it to her at some length like this. You know, we've had a hell of a year and people are thinking about Christmas and are yeah. thinking about seeing their families. That border, if we're being completely real uh, about it, that border around Auckland is is, is not going to move this side of Christmas, right? So would your advice to people doing... in, in Auckland be don't, don't book flights, don't book Airbnbs, don't plan to see the family outside of Auckland this side of Christmas? And the Prime Minister's equally long-winded response was this. No, that wouldn't necessarily be my advice. We are doing work on what can we do. At the moment, of course, we've got some people who are able to move and are doing that on the basis of uh, having that special accreditation to move because it's for uh, you know, essential goods and services moving um, or because there's a list of uh, reasons uh, within our order, like moving house or having to change jobs. But what we want to recognise is that there's a whole bunch of other reasons that are totally valid, particularly as we come up to Christmas, families wanting to be reunited. And how do we balance that need with also the desire for the rest of the country uh, to be safe from COVID during an outbreak? So we're doing some work on that at the moment. Meanwhile, over on the rival breakfast show the same day on TVNZ1, the Prime Minister and host Matty McLean got to the point a little quicker. Out of this by Christmas? Oh, I believe so, Yes. Now, those responses were flashed right across the media with headlines like PM says don't cancel Christmas travel plans just yet, running a big risk of getting a lot of people's hopes up. But just the day before, epidemiologist Dr Rod Jackson was clearly not among them on News Talk ZB's weekend collective show. As we're heading towards Christmas, is yeah. it conceivable, is both is it conceivable and two, would you recommend it, that if you were double jabbed and let's say you'd had a, a test and, and you don't have COVID yeah. and that's within 72 hours, that you could travel anywhere in New Zealand, say in December? <laughs> no, no. Now that show's co-host, Tim Roxburgh, seemed to be on the same page on that issue. I don't want, I've said before, I don't want people to be driven by the emotion of, of doing something by an arbitrary date like Christmas because... Delta may change, and then you've given people false hope. But 
if we keep tracking in a good direction with our vaccination rates, then maybe it is if you are double jabbed, you've got greater freedom of travel. But plenty of his peers in the media have been forcing that issue of Christmas lately. It was firmly in the calendar, for example, for stuff when they sat down with National Party leader Judith Collins earlier this month. And now given that there's a short runway sort of before, till the end of the year, till the Christmas period, when Christmas comes, do you think the government needs to lift restrictions in Auckland and lift the border? Well, hopefully they will be able to well before that, uh, but they need to get the vaccination rates up. And the National Party's plan for throwing the borders open by Christmas prompted Stuff's political editor Luke Malpass to ask this earlier this month, just what sort of a COVID Christmas do Kiwis want? Now, his answer was that fickle Kiwis want two different things at once for Christmas. On the one hand, he said, people want all this to be over, to see friends and family and travel and even for tourists to return. But on the other hand, many of those same people, he reckoned, just don't want any more COVID in New Zealand. Last week, News Talk ZB's Heather Duplessy Allen reckoned there was only one way to go. This is no longer a debate. We should expect that Kiwis stuck overseas, especially in low-risk COVID countries, can come home for Christmas. This needs to happen. Two days later, she challenged COVID response minister Chris Hipkins to declare whether Auckland would still be in Level 3 at Christmas or not. And this week, Kate Hawkesby on News Talk ZB said a good Kiwi Christmas just depended on the government's balls. Opening the border for Kiwis to come home for Christmas will be a ballsy but welcome move. Opening CBDs and retail, getting people back to the dentist and the hairdresser and the physio, allowing Aucklanders to escape Tamaki Makovit. This all needs to start rolling out over the next few weeks, surely. The pace, though, at which they move here is key. Quick enough to get the ball rolling in time for Christmas... Meanwhile, under the headline, Kiwis facing Christmas without family or favourite gifts and a stock photo of a middle-class white Christmas dinner, the Herald reported this last weekend. Not only could Santa find it hard to deliver that special gift in time for December 25th as global supply shortages bite, but petrol prices too have hit record highs. While the same day, RNZ reported that leading epidemiologists were saying everyone in New Zealand should plan to encounter COVID-19 themselves by Christmas and they'd better be prepared. Now, in that wellness chat on Wednesday this week, when Simon Barnett asked Nikki Bazant about the tension and the bad vibes created by lockdown, her response was interesting. I have to step away from the news sometimes and just mm. the commentary and stuff because it's, it's, it, a lot of it is very negative and I feel like that yeah. doesn't help when you're, in the, yeah. when you're in the middle of it. It doesn't actually help to hear yeah. someone complaining or talking about how it could be done differently or better or whatever. It actually doesn't. And the mental health impact of living with lockdowns has indeed loomed large in the coverage and the commentary that she was talking about there. Hayden Donnell asked the Mental Health Foundation's chief executive, Sean Robinson, have the media been getting this right or making it worse? Kia ora, Sean. Welcome to Media Watch. Kia ora, Hayden. Thank you very much. So you went viral on Twitter after you tweeted about a media company that rang you up asking you to denounce lockdowns over their effects on people's mental health. Just first of all, are you going to name the media company that did that? No, no, we're not into naming and shaming. It was really, you know, making a point about the occasional tendency of some media to try and dictate a story rather than actually listen and engage. Yeah, so how common has this type of request actually been? Is it an isolated incident or have other media companies actually asked you to kind of speak out against lockdowns? It's pretty 
rare, but that one was fairly extreme. But in this particular case, it was someone who said, would you say, and then presented an entire sort of case. If I'm asked a question like that, you know, I get a one-word answer, no. Um, You know, if people try to put words in my mouth, I don't think that's good journalism. You know, there have been other instances of that, not necessarily around the pandemic, but every now and then, I mean, I have had one journalist actually say, why don't you say this? And then tried to sort of give me actual words that he wanted me to say. Um, And, you know, I'm never going to do that. And I think, you know, any, any person who's genuinely trying to engage with the public through the media should resist that sort of thing and it's just really bad journalism. So it's almost taken as a given and a lot of this commentary that lockdown is really hard on people's mental health. How much data is there first of all to just actually support how hard lockdowns are on mental health? In in terms of of data I guess we're looking uh, at comparable situations like uh, you know, other Christchurch earthquakes. Um, um, but we also do, you know, we've been in this terrible situation of the pandemic for nearly two years now. And uh, and so there is information. And I guess that when the community is responding to a natural disaster, and, you know, this goes back to data from wars and, you know, other major community-wide threats and events, it actually boosts people's mental health in the first instance. Uh, and that's because people uh, feel like they're part of something. I mean, we've been very much encouraged to think of ourselves as part of the team of 5 million. The number of deaths by suicide has actually stalled or, or diminished over the lockdowns. It's the long tail uh, following some kind of uh, natural disaster or, or community threat that can have significant impacts on people's uh, mental well-being. But again, there's a big difference between the notion of people's mental well-being and, you know, simplistic ideas of mental illness. That there is a general sense of low well-being, of of kind of uh, low mood, sort of, um, you know, low energy, uh, uh, frustration, uh, and, you know, of course, that's that's very natural. That is quite different from people becoming mentally unwell. Has some of the commentary or a lot of the commentary really failed to consider the counterfactual here, which is the mental health effects of just opening up? Yeah, look, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, that's been a key argument that, that we've made. Um, you know, it, 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 there is, you know, there is a a lobby, a position of of some people, you know, we have the plan B group, Uh, you know, we have a number of people who would like to just see the restrictions around the pandemic, you know, the lockdowns end, you know, what would be the impacts of out of control COVID in the community uh, without any checks and balances? You know, you would see, um, you know, very significant numbers of people becoming infected, and so, you know, you'd also have the impact of people who couldn't get health treatment for, for other types of conditions. And, you know, that would have very big impact. So, you know, we've got grief about deaths. Uh, we've got grief about health. You know, we've, we've got fear and anxiety, you know, in an out of control 
uh, pandemic. So the sort of that the alternative scenario to what we're facing now has very big threats to people's mental health and well-being. I've, I've actually been quite angry at uh, some of the people who clearly have a political agenda around ending lockdowns who have quite, I think, you know, insincerely tried to link mental health and suicide rates to the lockdowns as an argument to sort of say the strategy of lockdowns is terrible and we should change it. Is the thing that most annoys you just using mental health as a kind of political football. So a month ago, Kate Hawksby wrote a column saying the mental health pandemic could be bigger than the COVID one. Anxiety levels are through the roof. Do we have to be careful about making these kinds of conclusions uh, that suit our own agenda without evidence? Oh, look, absolutely. You know, someone like Kate Hawksby says, you know, anxiety's through the roof. Well, what does she mean? I mean, yes, we're all feeling a bit anxious, a bit worried. That is quite normal. But, you know, there's a very big difference between saying that and and saying clinical anxiety is through the roof. Should we, as the media, on both sides of this debate, just be more cautious about drawing firm conclusions about the mental health effects of COVID policy and COVID-19 in general? given it seems complicated and even experts are finding it really difficult to assess. Some journalists are fantastic. Some journalists are really good. They think hard. They want to look at the whole picture. Others in the media, quite frankly, are lazy and they use simplistic tropes, almost unthought through reactions to mental health and then sort of put simplistic views of mental health together with simplistic views of COVID-19 and come up with stupid, simplistic answers. If journalists think about uh, links between mental health and well-being and COVID-19, then the first thing they need to do is think very hard about what mental health and mental and emotional well-being is. It's not all about mental illness. Think harder about mental health. Ask yourselves the question, what is mental health? Whenever I'm asked to talk about mental health, that's the first question I address. What is it? What do you understand it to be? Go to page 15 of Hey Ara Oranga, the report of the Mental Health and Addictions Inquiry, and look at what they said in summary there. I mean, this country spent millions of dollars and nearly two years looking at this question. We came up with a an answer and a direction, uh, and then most people seem to have completely ignored it, uh, which is extremely frustrating. Thank you so much for speaking to me, Sean. You're welcome. Thanks, Hayden. That's Sean Robinson, Chief Executive of the Mental Health Foundation, talking there to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell. Last weekend here on Media Watch, we looked at how the eight-hour Vaxathon extravaganza rolled out on TV as part of the Super Saturday mobilisation. And as we heard then, sceptics weren't hard to find in the media in advance. I'm, I'm, I'm really worried that this is going to be an absolute unmitigated disaster and really lame. Yeah, well, you are going to be proven totally, totally wrong by that. <laughs> the day delivered 130,000 vaccine jabs, almost 40,000 of them first doses, silencing most of the critics. But not all. Well, the government asked for a political truce. Now it's back to reality. 
It was a sad but desperate stunt. Axe David Seymour says Super Saturday has made very little difference to first-dose figures and instead the government needs to give people a date that it will open the borders and ease restrictions. RNZ's morning report last Monday. And the same day, News Talk ZB's chief reporter Jason Wall said the Vaxathon lacked the presence of opposition MPs. The event organisers, he said, got former wrestler Chavo Guerrero to deliver a get-vaccinated message from the US, but not a single national or ACT MP. And Jason Wall said it is understood both parties made MPs available, but were not given the opportunity to meaningfully participate. So is that what the production company's boss understands? This week I asked Bailey Mackey of Pangor Productions about that, but first, how do you pull together eight hours of live TV in less than eight days? Yes, probably seven days. Um, <clears throat> when I think about the first conversation I had with with the team, so mate, at the time where we made, pressed go on this thing, I was actually in Tolaga Bay on the east coast, so uh, was actually on my way to a, a Pedro East Coast rugby game, and all these calls started coming in, and so yeah, look, I um, uh, I, I think. Uh, the time frame gives you one or two things. The right to just get on and make a whole lot of decisions that otherwise might need a whole lot of approvals. But it also, you know, means your back, back is up against the wall and, and not a lot of sleep. So, um, There was a, a story in the spin-off that suggested that it, it might have been, the plan might have been hatched over a beer with the Prime Minister while she was on her uh, tour encouraging uh, the vaccination drive uh, up, up in that area. Was that correct? a little bit of an urban myth, but um, uh, I, I did obviously uh, when the Prime Minister was here I was here at the same time so we did have uh, some discussions about it, yes. It wasn't my idea to do, and that was hatched between a couple others uh, Sunny Ngātai, uh, Tamati uh, Shepherd. Yeah, you mentioned Sonny Natai there, and look, he, he was great in his role um, in anchoring this. He's a, a broadcaster that I, I guess a lot of the national network audience that tuned into it wouldn't have been that familiar with. And there were lots of uh, young faces, particularly young Māori faces. If this had been, you know, given to, say, TVNZ or TV3 Discovery or, or, or whatever, I'm thinking it's much more likely we would have seen all the familiar, the biggest names in, in TV and entertainment and so on. Was that a really conscious decision of yours that, you know, for the audience that we're trying to get to for the vaccination drive, you wanted to have a completely different profile of, of presenter and front person? Yeah, 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 that's exactly right. So the target demographic for the Vaxathon was 20 to 34. Um, it was obviously uh, Māori and Pacifica focused, but, but but still broad audience. You know, I was aware of the criticism, you know, it's going to be lame, it's going to be uh, kitsch and all those sorts of things. And I thought, OK, well, here's an opportunity to actually put on screen some younger, fresher faces. And, yep, they speak to the demographic that we're trying to talk to. Um, look, they wouldn't have been given that opportunity under normal circumstances. You're right, Colin. So here was an opportunity to experiment. New, fresh faces, obviously um, a lot more Māori, a Māori worldview. Uh, the numbers set a new record. Uh, it was double the Māori numbers uh, bettered, you know, the previous highest Māori vaccination rate was 10,000. I think we were 21,000 
Uh, from memory, um, you know, 20 to 34, there was over 40,000. Well, one criticism that's come out afterwards is New Zealand Herald and uh, News Talks EB reporting that opposition politicians and MPs, in their words, made available for the vaccine but not given the opportunity to meaningfully participate. Is that correct, that they were cut out in any way? Because, as has been noted, you know, the Prime Minister and even her partner were up on stage and uh, in front and centre in parts of the broadcast? Yeah, no, they weren't cut out. Um, the reality was, is in that time frame, there was only so many people that we could fit into the broadcast. In regards to David Seymour, um, personally, I was actually pretty keen to try and get him in there, but it just didn't work out. And one of the things I would say, with that focus on um, Māori and Pacifica 20 to 34, I, I don't know that uh, a lot of the opposition people that were put up really spoke to their demographic. Part of me didn't really want to politicise the day, but ultimately it is a national rally that amplified a lot of the activities that went on. Yeah, you had to go back to kind of the first principles of the broadcast, and they were to get particularly uh, that demographic um, out and vaccinated. Look at the areas we went to. They were areas that were, you know, the high Māori Pacifica um, populations, uh, Kaitaia, uh, South Auckland, Rotorua, uh, Porirua, uh, obviously Christchurch as well, because, we, you know, we wanted to have a presence in the South Island. But, but when you think about those areas and you think about kind of who are the uh, influencers or who are the influential people that will be able to rally that uh, demographic to get vaccinated, then that led us to choose talent that was fresh, that was new, that spoke to that demographic. Uh, and that included interview talent. So, so yeah. Aside from doing this broadcast, you have another uh, role which is quite significant uh, in the media at the moment, which is you're part of the uh, Strong Public Media Governance Group, which will be examining the business case for a new public media entity and even uh, drafting a charter for it. Um, the Minister of Broadcasting wanted to take something to Cabinet even this month. Is work on, on that uh, completed for your group? Uh, yes, it is. We've basically delivered uh, the Better Public Media business case. Uh, that's now in the hands of the gods, I guess. <laughs> OK, so the Minister's got it and where he can take it to Cabinet and then we find out the rest. That is the case. And can you tell us much about the structure of what's proposing to uh, uh, take us into the future? Look, I, I, I'm... I've got to try and figure out what is on public record and what isn't on public record, sorry. So right now I've, I'm, I've just probably had the first uh, seven-hour sleep I've had uh, in, in, in two weeks. Bailey Mackey of Pango Productions, the prime mover of last weekend's televised Vaxathon. And he's also a member of the Strong Public Media Governance Group, which is overseeing the business case for a new public media entity, which, as he said there, has now been delivered to the Minister of Broadcasting and Media, Chris Farfoy, who intends to take it to Cabinet by the end of the year. And that's a story we'll certainly be returning to here on Media Watch. One for a party, one for a person. One for a party, one for a person. What are you a, doing? What? Practicing, one for a person. Practicing more? MMP. You may not realise it, but I'm able to make two votes this election. One for a party and one for a person. It's a great responsibility and I don't want to muck it up. Good thinking, Well. Well, foot rot there of foot rot flats fame in a special election advert from back in 1996 explaining how to vote under MMP for the first time. 
Now, Murray Ball's cartoon creation was still popular in the daily papers three years before that when people voted to adopt that system itself, and MMP campaigners actually used wall foot rot in a poster. However, just like the first past-the-post system, foot rot flats itself had already been consigned to history by the time of that first MMP poll in 1996. Murray Ball shut the gate on the cartoon the year before because, according to some accounts, he was disillusioned with politics, while other people said it was because he didn't think it represented the New Zealand of the 1990s anymore. And that's a bit ironic, given that that was one reason for changing the electoral system itself at the time. Now those foot rot flats public education ads were dusted off by the media last week for the 25th anniversary of that first MMP election, an anniversary that was marked, among others, by RNZ and Newsroom's co-produced podcast, The Detail. When does this raise the hackles of the nerds? It's fair to say that, you know, among political scientists, this was, was, this was kind of a discussion that was always going on once the discipline kind of got established. It was, there were proportional systems in other places, in places like Europe, especially kind of in post-war Europe. And, uh, you know, it was natural to compare New Zealand's system to theirs. That was the voice of Henry Cook, senior political journalist at Stuff, who, in spite of having a pandemic response to cover, and regular politics as well, found the time recently to write a four-part series about how MMP has changed regular politics as we know them today. And under the headline, How Politicians Let Voters Destroy Their Way of Life in Three Short Years, he described how a radical dream became political reality in one chaotic decade, despite, in his words again, almost everyone in power hating the idea. And then Henry Cook wrote about the unpredictability of MMP during the first few years in the late 1990s, giving way eventually to more stability in the new millennium. But while Henry Cook claimed in his series on MMP for Stuff that recent Prime Ministers have made MMP look boring, that certainly wasn't the case the first time round 25 years ago. And one signature moment of that election was the ACT Party's unexpected debut win in Wellington Central, which was captured in an extraordinary fly-on-the-wall film called Campaign. Now, fearing that a narrow defeat in the overall election would happen if Labour seized the seat because the right-wing vote would be split in Wellington Central, National Party leader Jim Bolger pulled the rug out from under his own candidate without actually informing the unfortunate Mark Thomas, and the camera of documentary maker Tony Sutorius captured it all. I mean, it's bizarre that he made the comment. No, actually, what I could say is I'm sure, I'm sure that what he meant is that Preble is going to get in on the list. Well, that was quite a vignette of the new world of MMP, the likes of which we hadn't seen before in a documentary, and actually we haven't seen in one since. Tony Sutorius, though, is still making them. Indeed, he told me that another fly-on-the-wall film from the 2020 election campaign is under production. But first I asked him, did he think that campaign from 1996 would still be remembered when MMP turned 25 in 2021? I mean, I, did, I wasn't really conscious that people would still be talking about it in 25 years, but it did feel like an important time. Because, I mean, I guess you're not exactly living off the royalties or anything, but it has lasted the test of time. <laughs> yeah, oh, look, I really do feel proud about it. It, it, was a, it, was a, it was a real shot in the dark for me at the time. You know, I'd done a little bit of television work and so forth, but it was my first big project. The technology had just arrived that made it practical for one person working alone to go out and film all day long because I had no budget and, and no support. So it's all I had was me and this tiny camera. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that it actually was possible to, to capture something from that time that feels like it still means something. Do you believe that it would not be possible to catch 
uh, moments like that, you know, unguarded moments from candidates in the same way in that fly-on-the-wall style anymore? You know, it's, it's funny. People have been saying that it wouldn't be possible since before I did it um, 25 years ago. Politicians, like everyone else, generally really aren't ashamed of what they are. You know, we, we might look at it and think that it means this or that, but if, if, it's, if it's honest to them... I've recently shot a new project with Billy TK during the last election campaign, which is actually very similar to campaign, and Jamie Lee Ross. And, you know, the same thing happened. I mean, people who have media training, you know, they can't keep it up 24-7 and over weeks. And actually, it's better that they don't. I think the honest view of them is actually often not as bad as people imagine it would be. You know, I don't think there's too many villains in campaign, and I think that's actually generally true of politics. The irony of campaign, really, the whole story that, that gave that its juice was the fact that in this heightened expectation of this um, idealistic time in New Zealand politics... Well, as that 25th anniversary ticked over um, just last week, there's been a lot in the media looking back on it. But, I mean, none that I have seen have actually reflected on perhaps but whether the media have, have got to grips with it. And I wonder, I mean, you're not a, a day-to-day political journalist or anything like that, but as an observer, do you feel that the way our media report politics is still, as some critics claim, a bit too much horse race, a bit too much focused on major parties and so on and, and polling mm-hmm. results and electoral cycles that are as if the next election was tomorrow and not, you know, two and a bit years away? But still, to my great surprise, 25 years later, you know, all of these tiny little parties still seem to think it's necessary to set themselves up as kind of shadow governments and, you know, just, just as if they're going to be in power all by themselves next week. You know, having spokespeople for this and spokespeople for that and policies on every single thing and so on and so on. It strikes me that MMP, you'd think, would lend itself much more to a sort of activism model, you know, where uh, like a, a basically single-issue parties or parties that, you know, were dealt with a particular part of government that was important to enough people to get them elected and and would would try to be part of every government. You know, that's probably partly to do with the fact that the media doesn't really support that model, Um, and I expect that this will happen more and more, and I suspect that actually in some ways might be quite a good thing. Yeah, something to wait for in the next 25 years of MMP or whatever <laughs> yeah, comes next. Yeah, 25 years. We'll, we'll compare notes, see if it happens. Yeah, that's right. We'll see you back on Media Watch in 2046. <laughs> <laughs> if we do stick with MMP, maybe uh, it gets to a 50th anniversary. Will you be deeply disappointed if um, <laughs> campaign is not being resurrected as a memento of the very first one, and, you know, beamed by 3D well, hologram into um, homes around the, the country? <laughs> well, I thought I felt old at the start of this interview. Oh, my goodness. I'd be absolutely delighted if people still found something in it that was useful to them. You know, I, I think it'd be nice if it felt like we had um, moved on a little bit in, in our in our political culture. I, I think it's probably fair to say we haven't moved all that far since in the last 25 years. But, you know, there's, there's some things that ought to change. You know, for example, you know, just the simple, the, the basic story of campaign is about the fact that Richard Preble and, and the ACT Party at the time realised that if they won Wellington Central, then they could get list MPs without needing to pass the 5% threshold. That's a strange rule. And, you know, even Richard Preble's campaign manager in the film says it's a strange rule. It's weird. And yet there it is. I mean, it's it's time that was changed, I think. You know, the... the, the, um, yeah, the yeah, vote, vote for one uh, candidate, get six MPs or something was the slogan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then you know what? It's it's a it's a it's a pretty compelling message, really. And and he he was pretty ruthless and and clear about executing it. And and it and you know it made a huge difference. 
it's it's just silly. We should, I mean, you know, the, the basic mission of democracy should be to give people what they vote for with as few kind of complications and twists and turns as possible. I, I, just, I think that one needs to be um, ironed out a bit, as, as the Electoral Commission recommended way back in 2012, was it? Um, I, I think that's being looked at again, and I, I think that's really good. You know, that would be an improvement for New Zealand. Well, something similar might have, I'm guessing, was, was the strategy for the advanced New Zealand, you know, Billy TK, Jamie Lee Ross team up, uh, you know, to try and get as many votes as possible um, and then win a seat and do the same thing, coattail a few MPs. And if if they could have got enough, it would have worked for them. I guess they got nowhere near it in the end. Uh, But is that the story we're going to see when, you know, the inside story of that campaign comes to a cinema uh, near us when you're finished with that? Yeah, well, I think... I mean, from my point of view, there was something very interesting happened there where you had a sort of a a true believer, um, you know, in a a fairly fringy sort of a place. And there's always quite a few of those around the political scene. But then kind of this this quite odd alliance breaking out with a with a sort of mainstream retail politician. Um, And, you know, although it didn't actually end up leading, uh, you know, anywhere um, impactful in terms of votes, it, for a while there, it looked like it might. And, you know, I think the important thing about it is that the forces that were at work there are, are still out in the, out in the community and, and it'll happen again. You know, and, and actually the, the story there is bigger than, um, you know, the issues of right now around, around, you know, vaccination and COVID and so forth. It's actually about a pretty significant slice of the community feeling really, really disenfranchised and um, feeling that, that the state is not to be trusted and, and not to be kind of collaborated with. Um, and yet they were they were willing to give it a try, you know, in terms of like the actual political process. You know, whatever you think of them, um, the fact that they were sort of in the tent was probably in everyone's interests. And, you know, I, it, it, it's it's worth considering the implications of the fact that you know, those people are still out there and those forces are still at work. Uh, you know, that we haven't seen the back, the end of that. And can you tell us, give us a rough idea of when we may be able to um, to see that uh, the results of that and where? We're still negotiating that, but I think um, I, people should uh, look for it next year. They'll see it at some point next year. That was Tony Sertorius from Unreal Films, who made the Fly on the Wall film campaign about the contest for Wellington Central in the first MMP election back in 1996. And as we heard there, he's got another one under production, focusing on Advanced New Zealand and Billy TK's unsuccessful tilt at Parliament in the 2020 election and the fallout from that. Well, that's all we have for you on the media this weekend, but we'll be back again with more on the media with Midweek Media Watch next Wednesday night at about 10.30 during Nights with Brian Crump, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.